Welcome to Gibraltar Stories. I'm Lindsay Weston and this is the second part of the Frontier Closure 50 Years On, a podcast mini-series about the closure of the border between Gibraltar and Spain. A lot of things you couldn't buy at all. Other things you got from Morocco. I remember little boats coming full of, of fruit and vegetables and they would tie up at the quay. Fifty years ago this month, Spain's General Franco closed the frontier, the land border between Gibraltar and Spain. Families were split. Some faced the difficult choice of having to decide which side of the border to live on. Supply lines were cut, stopping anything crossing from Spain, including food, medical oxygen and communion wine. Spanish workers were forced to leave their jobs in Gibraltar. Some even lost their businesses and led to many of them moving away from the area in search of employment elsewhere, as well as a huge hole in the Gibraltar labour force. Ferry services between the Rock and the Spanish port of Algeciras across the Bay of Gibraltar ceased to operate and telephone lines were cut off. The only way in and out of Gibraltar was by air or by sea. The main route was the Tangier-Gibraltar ferry. Well, I found myself on the beautiful daylight today On the Tangier-Gibraltar ferry Letting me here with so many things to say As Gibraltar woke up to a new day on Monday the 9th of June 1969, it was facing a completely new way of life. No longer would workers be crossing over the frontier from Spain to work in homes, businesses, shops, the hospital or the naval dockyard, and there would be none coming over to sell their wares. Supply lines for food, medical oxygen, building supplies and countless other things were severed. A new solution had to be found, and Morocco, just a few miles away across the Strait of Gibraltar, was able to help immediately. Fruit and vegetables were brought in by boat. Henry Smart, a customs officer at the time of the closure, says thanks to Morocco and supplies from Great Britain, Gibraltar would not be beaten. The fruit and vegetables, we are glad that they started coming from, from Tangier on a ferry, a daily ferry, I think it was. The other items were imported from the UK. You know, so it was a really no major problem. There was a shortage of one or two things, but nothing important. Whether we, I think we again we have I have to repeat this. We succeeded. We succeeded honestly. The Gibraltar Chronicle on that Monday morning after the closure ran advertisements from local companies reassuring customers that food would still be available. The supermilk company apologised for a disruption to household deliveries due to a shortage of labour, but reassured customers it would still be available to buy in shops. And Jib Maroc published a list of fruit and vegetables which would be available that day, due in on a delivery on the Mons Calpe ferry from Morocco. Bread, though, was in short supply because the Spanish bakers were unable to come to work anymore. Eileen Gordon says that caused a big problem. That was a nightmare. Suddenly you realise you have no workforce and uh, a lot of women went out to work. I had two little girls, so I didn't go out to work. But a lot of when the houses associations formed as well and they took, took over the market stalls and a lot of things. You realise for a while there was no bread, so we used to get all kinds of recipes and make all kinds of kinds of, of, of weird loaves, you know. <laughs> I remember going to the beach one day and everybody produced a loaf and they were so disgusting. <laughs> 
Thankfully, the bread shortage didn't last long, thanks to a military intervention. Local historian Tito Vallejo-Smith. The army came in to, to lend a hand, particularly to Allied bakeries, who were the biggest uh, suppliers of bread. The, the RAOC at the time uh, helped with, with some of their personnel, because in Gibraltar we had two bakeries. We had the military and the, and the civilian. Uh, in those days, the military had their own supermarkets, the NAFI and things like that, and their own bread and things like that, and, and, and they did help. You know, we, because many of the bakers were Spanish. So they said, look, we'll, we'll take over and help you. Uh, we used to bring a lot of things from Portugal as well. They used to have a, 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 a few boats that used to go run by the Ramaje company, Ramajim. They all had the, the name Rama something, Rama old, you know, because the, the owner was Ramaje. And they used to bring lots of uh, stuff to Gibraltar. Uh, stuff by, I mean, by like uh, building materials and things like that, you know, not food. Food all came from Morocco and fish as well. The arrangements in turn meant higher prices for some goods and for Sylvia Ballantyne with a young family to feed, it meant sometimes they had to do without certain things. Well, we, we had frozen, the meat was frozen anyway, the chickens were frozen, everything was frozen, so that was fine, we never lacked uh, meat. The only thing was that the fruit and vegetables came from Morocco and uh, the quality wasn't very good. It improved afterwards, but it was expensive. And when you had a large family to feed, uh, I remember that sometimes you used to see the watermelons. And the watermelons were really, really expensive. And I couldn't sometimes afford to get a watermelon. It was too expensive. But nowadays you can go and you can buy watermelons next to nothing, for a couple of pounds. So in those days, it was really... Uh, but eventually... The Housewives Association, they went together and they had a meeting and decided to import food, uh, well, uh, fruit and vegetables, and they opened a stall in the market. So I used to go there in the morning when the children were in school, and I, used to, I was able to buy more things there. They were um, a, bit, a bit cheaper, cheaper than... So, yeah, you know, I managed. We never, we never went hungry, put it that way. And another thing which I remember is the eggs. Oh, the eggs. To get a fresh egg, it was terrible. They used to come by, by sea. So imagine by the time they arrived here, in summer in the heat, you used to go to a grocer's and buy eggs, take them home. And from a dozen eggs, half of them were bad. You took them back to the shop. And they used to exchange it, but it was, it was terrible, it was really bad, because before the frontier closed, I used to go to a little shop in Cornwall's Lane, run by a Spanish lady, and she used to bring some lovely fresh eggs from Spain. Although many staples were available, luxury items were scarce and very expensive. Eileen Gordon remembers that sometimes they had to be creative with their recipes. A lot of things you couldn't buy at all. Other things we got from Morocco, I remember little boats coming full of, of fruit and vegetables and they would tie up at the quay and people go down there and buy, I don't know, basket full of peppers for nothing at all and oranges. All that changed, but at the same time, thanks, some things you couldn't buy. You couldn't buy, for example, Spanish products, you couldn't buy. And olive oil, olive oil was the olive oil from Morocco, which is stronger in taste than the, than the Spanish, and uh, 
things like strawberries were very scarce here. You could buy them, but only the ones that they brought from the UK by air, which were very expensive. But, well, we, we always used to make do with what we had and use our imagination to improve things. Paula Galliano remembers having to go shopping with an open mind and planning meals on what was actually available at the time. The Moroccan force that came over, they were absolutely marvellous. They brought us fresh fruit and vegetables, um, albeit they didn't always have them in the shops. They'd come in on one day and everybody would go shopping and, and a few days later there'd only be the remains. So you had to, if you were cooking, you had to think well ahead and, and have several different menus in your head um, because things weren't in the shops that you wanted. And for luxuries, there were always ways of coping. No cream. There was no cream. No cream in Gibraltar. So we all had these little um, cream-making things. Uh, They were called cream makers. They consisted of a, a jug into which you put milk and then you had to melt the butter and pump it until it became your own cream. Wow, I've never heard of such a thing before. Really? <laughs> see if I can find you one. I've got mine still. You know, you always think the ball's going to close again. Um, cream maker. Cream maker machine. Here we go. Oh, price in India. You'd like to know that, wouldn't you? <laughs> See if there's a picture of one. Oh no, these are all, these are all amazing. Uh, it, if I knew where mine was, I would show you. But it literally was just a little, little jug, and the top was red. It screwed on, and you put your, your milk in. It had to be a particular type of milk, and then, and then you, you just pumped it. We didn't have any fresh milk here either during the frontier. We had, we had ideal milk. We all drank ideal milk and we all longed to go back to England and have a cup of tea with fresh milk in. And when we got there, we didn't like it. it, it the, you know, we got so used to the other. Although Annette Tunbridge was a young girl at the time, the intermittent supplies of certain foods stuck in her mind. But she says Gibraltarians adapted to their new situation very well. Obviously, there was, there was things in short supply. Fresh vegetables are... I don't know why carrots stick in my mind, but it was like my mum sending me to the sort of to the little greengrocer in the estate to get carrots, and just seeing like little gnarled, gnarled old things there, and that was the only carrots available until two weeks' time, kind of thing. So a lot of tin stuff were used. I mean, a frozen meat was was the norm, because you didn't couldn't really get fresh meat as such. Uh, uh, or at least not enough to supply the whole people. Everybody had a pressure cooker because it was easier for frozen, tougher meat to, to, to break down in a pressure cooker. Um, and uh, that kind of... It, it's just changing, again, the situation, adapting to... Uh, if, any, if anything has, has, has marked the Gibraltarian out uh, through the centuries, is ad- ad- adaptability. Pretty soon, things got up and running again, and although it was a tough time for many, Tito Vallejo-Smith recalled it gave some businesses an opportunity to profit. Right here at Waterport, <clears throat> there was a police post and, and a revenue post, and there was a huge, big nissen hut. 
and uh, a Moroccan took that over and he, he used to bring the, the vegetables and fruits from Morocco and inside this nation you had a corridor in the middle and lots of rooms on either side and you used to go in one door at one end and in each room there was potatoes, lettuces, apples, pears, all sorts of things individually in every room and you went in with your two baskets and you started filling them with whichever you wanted and when you got to the other end the, the, the chap was there and said Allah what have you got there? Okay give me two shillings you know and, and it was great but then we had private companies taking over and then they took the monopoly. You see, I, I always say that in these situations there are people who, who lose everything and people who rise. Like I say, one man's meat is another man's poison, you see? And uh, like I always say, they, some businesses were ruined and others sprouted. For example, furniture. You had to buy the furniture that they had in the shop. Whether you like it or not. The clothes, you had to buy whatever they had in the shop. And, and, and everything else, the shoes, everything. And it was these people who made a, a lot of profit before you used to go to Spain, like we go today. Sometimes we go there because things are cheaper over there than they are over here. Well, here, you, you had to take it or lump it. That's what you got. <laughs> Unfortunately for us, but those who had the businesses really made a lot of money. Some of them are millionaires today. So like I said, in, in, in these situations, in wars and conflicts, some lose, some gain. It wasn't just food that needed to be sourced for the shops. David Bentata worked in his family's clothing business and found that the closed frontier years gave him the opportunity to flourish. I was the youngest of the commercial class in Gibraltar that was still there, and so I was much more lively. And my father, thank God for that, my father had a lot of confidence in me. You know, when I told him, you know, give me money, give me an air ticket, and I'm going to bring something new to Jim, and it, and it worked. I would, I would travel to London, to um, Italy, to France, to Morocco. I'll tell you how difficult it was. You remember stretch jeans? When I first saw stretch jeans, I thought this is ideal for kids with nappies and everything. I had to get stretch denim from somewhere and factories that will do it without, not even telex. I don't think the telex was on then. I managed to get stretch denim from Yokohama sent to Tangier, to the duty-free part of Tangier, for a factory to cut and make and trim, and then bring it into Gibraltar on the Monscalpe. And I designed it. I designed clothes, I designed the, the, the jeans, and, and we opened a shop called Chico West. And people, you know, it was fashion for kids. Nobody had that, that sort. Kids were dressed like kids, babies like babies. Suddenly you could dress them with stretch jeans and, and, and Brutus shirts. It was amazing. For some people, though, the small matter of a closed frontier wouldn't stop them getting their hands on Spanish supplies. Lewis Wood was a security police officer on the border. I know that they later the, they also, in, during the closure days, uh, some, some here in Gibraltar, they used to go to Spain by, by lunch. They used to buy lunches and they used to go and bring stuff from over there to Gibraltar as well. But uh, there's uh, ham legs and so... There were always <laughs> round things then. Yeah, everything was different. <laughs> as many supplies which previously came into Gibraltar from Spain ceased with the closure of the frontier, it caused a great many problems, not least in the hospital and in religious life. Journalist Clive Galt explains. That was particularly bad because we, we used to import oxygen from Spain and that was cut off. And, uh, and then the ironic thing of wine for, altar wine for the church, you know, I mean, and they're so Catholic and so ultra-conservative Catholics. I mean, look, 
But when it came to Jib, it's like democracy. They're very democratic, but when it comes to Jib, forget it. We have no rights. Paula Galliano worked as a nurse in the maternity ward at St Bernard's Hospital. She recalls that fortunately many of their supplies were sourced in the UK, so they weren't badly affected. I don't remember it having any particular impact at all because a lot of the things that we got, we got from England. So I think we get a lot of things from Spain now, but in those days most of the things that we got in the hospital were, were British. From my point of view, it didn't, didn't. I worked on a maternity ward, and for me it made, made no difference at all. We still got everything we needed from England. As a regular churchgoer, Sylvia Ballantyne remembers well the problem of no communion wine, but says they were able to find another supplier eventually. They found another way to, probably from Portugal. I'm not sure exactly where they brought it, but they know they, everybody, they managed to get the communion wine and... Uh, went back to, to, I mean, we couldn't do without wine. I mean, both all the churches, the Cathedral of the Holy Trinity and the Cathedral of the St. Mary the Crown, and you know, all the churches we've got here. I know we did manage wine. Uh, oh, and even the candles, even the, and, and the wax candles too, to come from Spain, the churches. So, no, no, they managed. Eventually we, we went back to normality practically. Ingenuity also played a role as time went on. Manuel Perez was a newly qualified engineer when he returned to Gibraltar from university. He says that solutions needed to be found for the lack of building materials. I remember when I first came back, my f- it was my first um, day at work. Um, the, um, the commissioner of Lancer Works at the time, uh, name was uh, John Cuello. He sort of... <laughs> Um, hollered out from his office, come up. And so up I went. <laughs> what he said, do you know anything about geology? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. Well, come with me, we're going to open up a quarry because we, you know, we need a stone. To, and, and off we went you know, to locate the best place for the quarry to be started and uh, uh, you know, get uh, some um, um, explosives, etc., to start the initial... Um, breaking up on, and and then to move in the equipment for crushing rock and everything else, so that um, you know at least the construction industry could um, could continue. So I mean that that just gives you a little snippet. But it was the same in many in many areas where you had to improvise a lot and uh, with the materials and, and and stuff that you had. Could more have been done by the British government to mitigate against the effects of the closure beforehand? According to Gibraltar's Deputy Chief Minister, Dr Joseph Garcia, that's a possibility, but there was a lot of support coming from Britain. The UK was really our only protector at that time, and the UK took steps um, diplomatically, they'd taken steps militarily, the garrison here was reinforced, and they also took took steps economically, they they declared that while the restrictions were in place, the UK would economically support and sustain the economy of Gibraltar to make sure that it didn't collapse. And all that happened. So where, where perhaps there is some criticism, and I think that is what you're referring to now in your question, is in terms of the contingency planning. You know, we knew this was coming. Were we fully and adequately, adequately prepared for it? And probably the answer is no. But I think it's always very dangerous for us to speak with the benefit of hindsight. 
And so, as supplies were restored to Gibraltar from Morocco, Portugal and the UK, life got back to a new kind of normal. It would be 16 years before the border was reopened to motor vehicles and the possibility of supplies coming back into the rock from Spain. My thanks to everyone who's contributed to this episode. A full list of contributors can be found in the show notes for this episode at gibraltarstories.com. My thanks also to the Gibraltar National Archivist, Anthony Pataluga, for all of his help while I was researching this project over several months and for granting me the permission to use the image of the closed frontier to illustrate this mini-series. My thanks also to Philip Valverde, whose performance of Going South features in the series. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please share it with your friends. And don't forget, you can subscribe to Gibraltar Stories for free on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, SoundCloud and Spotify. You can also follow Gibraltar Stories on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Until next week, goodbye for now and thanks very much for listening. Gibraltar, my Gibraltar, keep your face clean. From the north side of the border My Gibraltar My Gibraltar Keep your nose clean from the north side